I've learned that if I sit still and silent long enough, I can often locate the emotional charge of almost any ailment and conflict within me. In stillness, I'm reminded of the days when I was filled with inferiority about being a child of immigrants. Before, I held on to those memories, but now my goal in finding them is to release them, to give them back to the earth. I read somewhere that a feeling cannot end if it does not begin. I've invited these feelings to walk through the front door of my inner home and have often been confronted with the pain and the denial that I used to hide away. The journey towards self-love is never ending, but with dedication and close introspection, it is one that is infinite and boundless. I think that we cannot truly know love until we have experienced its opposite, suffering and the lack of love. What I've learned about love, the true, unconditional kind, is that it has no beginning and no end. Love is not some finite resource, and in fact, it grows when we accumulate it. In this way, it is exponential. Shakespeare once said of love, my bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite. External validation is short-lived and impossible to maintain. Internal validation is the only validation one needs in this lifetime. When I can become an observer of life rather than a reactor to life, I realize how connected I am to everything that is and everything that ever was. Don't get me wrong, I mean, I still wake up some days and feel very much misunderstood. I feel pulled in directions and dreams that are not my own because of my ego or because I feel a yearning to belong above all else. But in my journey of getting to know people who are vastly different from who I am and asking the question why, I've realized that maybe all of us have felt misunderstood and confused about who we are. Maybe even you have had a day in which the door you walked through was like an entryway into a storm that forced you to find the strength and resilience buried deep within your spirit to reveal itself in order to survive. I speak with Hamada Zahawi, an Iraqi-American lawyer and educator who shares his perspective and experience returning back to Iraq. He shares some context about the start of the first Gulf War all the way through the early 2000s and to the present moment. Your life will not be dictated from the top down. You have agency up to a certain point, and you have the ability to make a difference uh, based on the actions you take and what you volunteer to do and what information you plan to learn. Um, YouTube is available to everybody, right? Social media has opened up the universe to others for good and for bad. And so obviously I just, I tell them to stay woke, you know, to be able to stay present, to stay relevant and to stay educated on what's happening around the world because those are the things that are going to allow them to move the country from the bottom up and not necessarily expect everything to be moved from the top down. And that was really our role when we were in Iraq is we were really trying to push for private sector reform. So there's less of a dependency on the social sector, right? The, the government sector, which usually has been the employer of about 80 plus percent of the Iraqi people. 
And so I've always been a huge proponent of how can you encourage the younger generations to be part of a, a community that rises from the bottom to the top uh, and is able to push their country accordingly. And I think that's what I'd really, uh, I hope to see and I really would encourage those Iraqis to keep doing that. The people uh, mixed with a desire to see something much greater for their country, to have that opportunity, but also mixed with a lot of disappointment because of how little uh, we were able to accomplish in the long, long haul because of how much uh, Iraqi politics changes month by month and year by year. So every time we would have an accomplishment, we'd see something grow in one way, it would just take many steps backwards. I do have to say that um, the strength, I said the pride, but also the strength of the Iraqi people. I remember in one instance, we were training uh, Iraqi commercial law judges on how to improve or under better uh, adjudicate things related to arbitration, letters of credit and commercial contracts and so forth. And so we brought out a lot of US judges from like the Southern District of New York and some of the more prolific courts that also had an international realm in the US. And when we were training the Iraqi judges, I remember one judge in particular, really astute, really, really dedicated judge that had been shot, I think over 10 times and showed us the bullet holes in his body. Because I think you may remember, there was a concerted effort by a lot of terror groups in Iraq to get rid of the quote-unquote intelligentsia, whether they were professors or doctors, those that really, in terms of human capital, were like centuries of human capital disappeared. You know, 30 years of medical practice, the person got shot. A professor who's been teaching X got, you know, assassinated, right? Killed, targeted. So talking to these judges who consistently wanted to stay in their country, who could have easily left, to be able to play a role in the revised justice of the country, really was just unbelievably inspirational to the point that the the judge that we took with us who's one of the most prolific judges in the Southern District of New York, a, a judge named Jed Rakoff, he uh, was awarded a, a prize for just his him being an outstanding judge in his court. He dedicated that prize, I never forget, to the judges of Iraq and spoke about it in front of all the other judges in New York when he accepted the prize. And that really was a, a beautiful scene because a lot of the people in the court, I mean, in the, who were witnessing the, the handover of the, of the prize had never really thought about the judges in Iraq. It was just not something that was on their radar. Um, so I think those are really the, the biggest surprises for me uh, and really warm surprises uh, in terms of my experience there. She had almost told uh, the Iraqi government and, and said that the, the U.S. would not invade and that almost kind of sanctioned, if I remember, saying that something that there wouldn't be a state of war. And Bush Sr., President Bush Sr. at the time, ignored her ability to kind of carry the water between these two parties. And you have to remember, historically, Iraq was aligned with the U.S. against Iran, right? Yet we knew about the Iran-Contra affair and all kinds of stuff. There was deep-seated suspicions. But Iraq was at least on the books aligned with uh, the U.S. against Iran. And so in this instance, uh, Saddam was calling Bush's bluff, Bush Sr.'s bluff, uh, in terms of invading. And uh, April Gillespie at the time, the ambassador, had mistakenly or transferred information that gave Saddam a false sense of, of security that there wouldn't be an invasion. And in fact, there was. Um, and that really, again, kind of like led to the fallout afterwards and the inability for Saddam to reconcile. The sanctions came about, as you know, shortly thereafter in 1991 and onwards, there were most crippling sanctions in history. Um, it saw the death of a monstrous number of people, uh, of generations, 
uh, that were wiped out in Iraq because of those sanctions that weren't lifted until I think 2003, probably around the summer of 2003 when it was finally lifted and Saddam is no longer there. So you're talking about 12 years of sanctions that the Iraqis have endured, and a lot of which came back from a, that incident that had happened and that miscommunication that had transpired between the two parties. Looking at the Iraqis coming to the U.S., they came in waves, right? So the first wave, probably, there were there were Iraqis coming here in the uh, in the early, you know part of the 20th century, much like the Lebanese and the Palestinians, uh, obviously to a lesser degree that were, you know, coming to America for different opportunities. And there were Iraqis even in Michigan as early as that, that period of time. And then there was a huge lull because Iraq became a quite a wealthy country from the 50s to the early, you know, the, the late 70s, right? So there wasn't much of an international migration of Iraqis. But around the late 70s and early 80s, there was a huge Shia population that moved to the U.S., as well as a Chaldean population that moved. The Shia predominantly moved to Michigan, as well as some of the Chaldean populations, Chaldean being Iraqi Christians, who were some of the oldest minorities in Iraqi history. And uh, there was also a, a, the Chaldeans that moved to San Diego. And that was pretty much the biggest two centers of Iraqi diaspora that uh, lived in the U.S. And then the second wave came after the Gulf War in uh, 1990, 1991. Um, and then the third wave really came about in 2003 onwards uh, in different waves. And each one of them had their own histories, their own narratives, their own socioeconomic background, their own cultural identity. We now return back to Sanan and Mukhtar, who talks about his integration into American society and his experience as a newly hyphenated American living in Chicago and how it matched up to some of his ideals when living in Iraq. I had this really, really good image, like perfect image about U.S., the more I'm living here and the more I learn and I understand what's happening, like when, when I'm looking at, so you know, I live in Chicago, for example, and when you see how segregated the city is, when you look at so many like social determinants of health here in the city, when you see like what happened last year, like with Black Lives Matters, like when you see like there is so much to be done in U.S., now I feel, I, I, of course, like I didn't live all my life here, so probably I'm, I'm, I'm the last person like to give like a bold opinion. But ba based on my experience, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed, I would say. While I've largely focused on some of the difficulties of growing up Iraqi American, I also want to celebrate the beauty of this land and its people and how incredible it is to live in such a diverse melting pot of cultures, opinions, and ethnicities. Perception is relative, and of course, I am eternally grateful to have grown up in a country in which I can speak about my story with a certain level of freedom, which is something we cannot take for granted, especially compared to countries with authoritative regimes and dictatorships. I want to thank every single person who has shown love and kindness and compassion on this journey, and I hope that we can continue to stir the pot of both our similarities and our differences and celebrate the lives of other hyphenated American stories together.